Good evening, good morning. Uh, this is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to Radio Evolve, our global webcast for consciousness and culture. I'm very happy to have today with us uh, David Abram. David, hello. Hello, Thomas. It's great, great uh, to have you here. Uh, you are, where are you sitting right now in the United States? I even forgot to ask. I am in northern New Mexico. Uh, New Mexico. So uh, this is the upper Rio Grande Valley. I am sitting uh, in my home on the slopes of, um, of one of the foothills of the southernmost spur of the Rocky Mountains. Great. So we have a conversation from the, south, uh, from the Rocky Mountains to here, Central Europe in, in Frankfurt. Yeah. Uh, next to the mine, there's a little mountain range here too. It's also, I think, appropriate uh, if we talk to someone like you to also have the landscape uh, from the beginning being part of the conversation. Yes, I think it's very important too. I'll just say also that the, the Rocky Mountains are like the spine of the Americas um, and of North America. So it's and, and just near the very bottom of the spine of this continent. If I may say two sentences uh, to you, you are a cultural ecologist and philosopher. You lecture and teach widely in several continents, and you are also author of two books, Becoming Animal, An Earthly Cosmology, and The Spell of the Sensuous, Perception and Language in a More Than Human World. Can you say some more words? Uh, who are you? What are you doing? Sure. Well, yes. So I'm a cultural ecologist, which in in many ways combines ecology with anthropology. I study the relation of different cultures to their particular landscapes um, and what we can learn from other cultures about uh, what might be good to do in relation to the more than human earth around uh, our communities uh, or what uh, would be good not to do or to avoid uh, because we can see the deleterious effects. Um, but I am also known as a philosopher or a geophilosopher, that is someone who uh, thinks under the influence of the earth, under the influence of a more than human biosphere. Um, my particular fascinations, I would say what I am uh, well known for is uh, two two things, my, my work on the ecology of perception or what we might call the ecology of sensory experience. That is how the activity of our eyes, of our ears, of our skin, our nostrils actually binds our separate nervous systems into the encompassing ecosystem. Perception as a kind of glue that binds our individual nervous systems into the wider ecosystem of the land itself. Um, but I'm just as interested in and uh, known well for my work on the ecology of language. That is how what we say has such a profound influence upon what we see or hear or even taste of the earth around us. Because I am convinced that 
<clears throat> there are many ways of speaking that uh, that many of us moderns have inherited from our culture, ways of speaking that actually work to stifle and inhibit the spontaneous uh, exchange between our animal senses and the animate earth. But I'm just as convinced that there are other ways of speaking that can open our animal senses, that can enhance and encourage this instinctive reciprocity between our bodily senses and the earthly sensuous. And so I am always exploring this nexus or this edge between the ecological dimensions of language and of sensory experience itself. That's in fact a very fascinating starting point because uh, you call yourself a geo-philosopher and you said that you are doing your philosophy under the influence of Earth? Yes. So that, uh, of course, opens up really the question, what, what, what does it mean uh, to philosophize under the influence of Earth? I think many of our listeners maybe uh, will have this question, what, what this can mean. Mm. And uh, you, you're, you're describing two spheres, as I hear you. One is the sensuous, Yes. And, the, and the other is the language. Yes. And it seems that you are in that really describing two very fundamental dimensions of our humanness. Yes. Essential beings, but also what makes us human as humans, our capacity of language that also uh, allows us to go beyond the sensuous, to have all kinds of worlds that are only living in language. And this mm. uh, may be part of also uh, where we can go astray with, with, with our consciousness, but maybe also deepen our awareness. So uh, tell me a little more uh, of what does it mean to philosophize on the influence of Earth and how, how this relationship between the centuries and the language, the way you're seeing this as a philosopher. Yes, I mean, for me, these are not really two uh, different spheres. Um, As I was already trying to suggest, um, it seems to me that our sensorial experience um, is always influenced, filtered, constrained, uh, or opened by our ways of speaking. It's always affected by the ways that we wield our words, whether we're speaking English or German or Swahili. Um, uh, the ways we speak profoundly uh, constrain our direct sensorial experience. And for me, my deep interest is our sensory experience of the earth or of the, what I speak of as the more than human world. When I began writing, I became very frustrated by the lack of, Uh, vocabulary to speak of what we commonly call nature. Um, we have very few words. We have you know, nature, the land, um, the earth. Uh, but our primary word, nature, which is a beautiful term, um, 
it is has become used and associated so much with a sense uh, uh, that nature is out there and it is what is in some ways the opposite of culture so culture human uh, language creativity uh, invention is all on one side of a line and nature is what is out there on the other side of the line or it is what we encounter when we step out of doors and leave the city behind and I found that this is not such a useful set of associations uh, because what I mean by nature is something that includes human culture with all of our creativity and our inventiveness and our language of course um, and the human imagination as well that all of this it seems to me is embedded within and permeated by uh, nature in the sense in the broad sense that I wanted to speak of it and so I I coined this phrase, the more than human world, mm-hmm. to say that, um, that the world, uh, or what I speak of as the, the, the more than human earth, it includes human kind and human culture, but it always exceeds humankind and human culture. So I'm wanting to break down this opposition between the two and rather see them as uh, nested sets, that human culture is nested within this much wider uh, realm of the more than human world. And yet human culture is permeated by and um, completely informed and influenced by the more than human realm of other animals, of plants, of the winds and the waters. But um, so that we have a sort of provisional uh, enclosure of what, when we feel that we are caught up within the human hubbub of the city or caught up in human uh, creativity and our rich imaginative worlds. But although it seems to be a kind of interior set-apart space, it is not. It is still profoundly informed by and fed by the rest of nature. So for me, to think or philosophize under the influence of the earth is, it's in fact what we all do, we who think at all, um, we're always under the influence of the earth and yet we don't attend to this. We don't pay attention or notice how thoroughly and profoundly our reflections, our thoughts, our imagination, our creativity is informed by gravity, informed by the air that we are breathing, informed by the flight of birds as they swoop past us or by the clouds gathering overhead. We are always, it seems to me, under the influence of the more than human earth. But uh, our language, our conventional ways of speaking and hence of thinking have, uh, have tended to blind us to that fact. 
um, we live within a kind of pretense of standing apart from nature or being able to rise above and beyond uh, the natural world. I think that's kind of goofy and um, ridiculous, really. That, that's interesting. And when you're describing this way, uh, it, it's, it seems that uh, it is very important to you to really uh, be aware that uh, we, are, um, we seem to live in a bubble that we call human culture, uh, that, that uh, is very much constrained with our human perception of who we are, what 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 reality is, and in this bubble we are not aware of the bigger reality that we are living all the time. And one example you brought, uh, we may be in a as cultural environment as it may be, but the gravity is the gravity, and uh, it's it, it, both of us. You, you sitting. Uh, in, in, in the US, me in, in, in Central Europe, we, we are pulled by the same force. It's, it's something uh, that we usually don't reflect so much on. We just take it for granted. Uh, we, this, at the same time, uh, when started before this broadcast, uh, 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 we're talking what we would like to talk about. And I said, I would uh, like to ask you, which world are we living yeah. in? And um, when you're describing the earth right now, what comes to my mind when someone, at least someone like me, thinks about the earth uh, yeah. or, or hears you talking about the earth, uh, what comes to my mind is uh, an image of this blue globe uh, of uh, certain things I at least seem to know about it. They may be ecological, they may be my personal relationship, they may be history, they may be geological, but these are all uh, quite abstract realities. Even the globe, this blue uh, ball, uh, I've never seen. Uh, yeah. it, it's, 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 it's some photo uh, screen that I've seen, the people have told me this is what I'm sitting on. Yeah. So it seems that uh, that, that our perception when we talk about, we take it for granted, is very much in a, in a, in that sense, artificial relationship to this world, because I'm not talking about the tree that I see outside, uh, of my window, uh, right now, or the, the, the mountain range that's, that's next to it. Uh, we created something as humans that is very much its own cultural thing, very much created primarily with language, and seems to be quite uh, on its own when we're living in any kind of city. Uh, you can also kind of forget about the earth at some degree and just think that basically human artifacts is all there is. Particularly when you live in the web and the internet, even more so. Uh, is that exactly what you try to uh, kind of point out or, pro uh, or, or show that there is a problem that we may be having doing this? Yes, sure. Um just as you say, uh, of course, for me, because I'm so fascinated by our bodily senses, by our eyes and our ears and our skin and our taste buds and our nose and nostrils sniffing the smells that reach us. Uh, when I speak of uh, our perceptual relation to the land or to the more than human earth, I am not speaking 
certainly not primarily. I'm not speaking of that abstract blue marble floating in space, which of course is uh, a view from radically outside the earth. Um, it is perhaps the moon's perspective on the earth. Um, uh, but I am speaking about the world as it meets our bodily senses every day, every night, steadily, um, in uh, our, the feel of the ground underfoot, the feel and taste of the air as we inhale it through our nostrils and breathe it back out into the space around us at every moment. You and I could not be having this conversation. We couldn't be speaking or thinking at all if we were not continually imbibing this invisible stuff we call air. But of course, the air that you and I inhale, the air that all of us animals need to uh, breathe for our metabolism is precisely what is breathed out by all of the plants, all of the rooted herbs and grasses and bushes and trees and forests uh, within and around our towns and cities, what the trees and the plants breathe out, that oxygen is precisely what all of us animals need for our metabolism. So it's what we breathe in. But then as we take in that air, we circulate it within our lungs and it spreads out into our bloodstream. And we sort of alchemize this elixir we call atmosphere or air within our bodies and transform it so that what we breathe out, uh, now rich with carbon dioxide, is precisely what all of those green and growing plants need to breathe in for their metabolism. So what the animals breathe out, all the plants are breathing in. What the plants breathe out, all us animals are breathing in. This astonishing reciprocity, which enables every moment of our experience, including our most uh, highfalutin or abstract reflections, is informed not just by humankind, but by all of the plants that inhabit the earth where we sit or walk or stand. Why is this what you're bringing in? And that is uh, definitely not the usual perspective that when we talk about earth, uh, not many people would go there as you go there. And it seems to be a very important message for you to be aware Uh, the, the, the air that I'm breathing, how the air that I'm breathing is something that plants are breathing out and how we are connected. Why is this something that we really need to be aware of in the degree uh, that you seem to bring it to the world? It seems to be an important message. And well, I, for, for me, I am astonished. I am astonished by these, uh, by these dimensions of our experience that we take so much for granted. Mm. that we don't even notice them, like mm. breathing itself. But I was just speaking of that as one example. You spoke of gravity. That is another example. That is the way that I am constantly, uh, uninterruptedly under the influence 
of the earth due to this attraction, really a mutual attraction of my body for contact with the ground and of the ground or of the earth for contact with me. But it's not just with me, it's with any other being around me, any other animal, any uh, stone or rock that I would heave up into the into the air will then fall back upon the earth because there is this kind of, yes, well, we speak of gravity as a kind of mutual attraction uh, between bodies, often at a distance from one another, which, if you think about it, uh, is much like what we speak of as eros, that is the erotic allurement mm. uh, that my body might feel for another person, uh, for uh, a beautiful woman across the road or a beautiful man that I see. And I'm drawn, I feel this erotic attraction that makes me feel like uh, I wish to come closer. Where It's as if all of these uh, um, moments of attraction between bodies or between persons or that you might feel for another animal, uh, a lovely cat that uh, lives in your household. But it's as if all of these are little ripples on the surface of this ocean of eros or of allurement, of attraction between your body and the ground itself. Uh, this attraction that the earth seems to feel for our bodies, that draws us into contact with the earth. So we are steadily in this, um, in this rich, uh, um, almost erotic uh, allurement or attraction uh, field between ourselves and the broad body of the sphere. Um, there are so many uh, dimensions of our experience that we take utterly for granted. And my work, uh, among other things, but perhaps it's, it's, it's one of the, the, the deepest streams or impulses that moves through my work, is bringing out these dimensions of experience that are so close to us that we don't notice them, mm -hmm. that we take them completely for granted. And just finding ways to speak of these that make them suddenly become more salient, more evident, more uh, real to us so that we cannot forget them. Why is it important, as you ask, to, to do this? Well, we are living in a time of tremendous ecological uh, uh, destruction of Un, utterly unexpected um, losses compounding around us over the last uh, 20, 30, 40 years as our culture uh, unwittingly by its actions is bringing about the demise or the, the death or the extinction of so many species of animals, so many species of plants while the waters that we depend on for our lives are being increasingly fouled. The groundwater 
in the soils where we live. The soils themselves are uh, being drained of their nutrients by our ways of living. And the air, the atmosphere itself, is being so profoundly affected, not just by pollutants and toxins, but now, as we know, um, the, the planetary atmosphere is shivering into a bone-wrenching fever. Um, is this because we, as a species, are very mean-spirited and ugly in our impulses? No, it's simply because we've not noticed that this mm -hmm. world of wind and water, yeah, of other animals and plants, we've not noticed that it's really here. We take it so profoundly for granted. We have not recognized how utterly dependent and interdependent with these other lives and these earthly elements, our life remains. And so to how do we approach this compounding and accelerating ecological crisis? Uh, for me, first and foremost, no matter what other actions one is taking, no matter how actively engaged one is politically and in various environmental uh, uh, initiatives, first and foremost, we have to be working to become ever more awake to the dimensions of reality that we had forgotten, that we have been blind to, or that our entire civilization seems to have massive blind spot in relation to hmm. the earth. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I'm, if, if we look deep enough, uh, it seems to be quite obvious how our ecological crisis is related uh, to this very relationship or non-relationship uh, that, that you're explaining. And it seems to be, uh, from my perspective, even more so uh, when I kind of ask myself, why do I find it so important what, what you bring here? That we live in a in a time uh, of uh, virtualization of reality, where uh, we uh, the algorithmic uh, part of what we what we live with from the internet in all its incarnations may may be social media may may, may be uh, just uh, how this reality works. It's more than ever uh, easy to forget. Uh, that we are embodied. Uh, there are even fantasies how basically uh, our algorithmic artificial intelligence is something that is 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 a full valid uh, 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 possibility of our future. And I guess part of why what you're bringing. Uh, is so decisive right now is because there's so many movements, I'm talking about the technological movements, it seems to, to pull us further away from our everything that you're talking about right now uh, because there's a whole kind of uh, universe opening up uh, that is uh, in its nature algorithmic and not uh, kind of uh, incorporated uh, living, breathing uh, in that sense part of this earth. 
Yes. Yes, I would fully agree. I, it, it does seem to me, uh, at least here in America, as I look around me, uh, that people are spending more and more time uh, in relation to their screens, to the screens of their computers, to the screens of their phones, and whatever other screen-fitted thingamabobs they're carrying around in their pockets. That is, it's as if through our eyes we are synapsing ourselves to the screens in a way that short circuits uh, the instinctive uh, co-evolved attunement of our human eyes with the whole of the visible terrain of our ears with the soundscape that contains not just human voices, but contains the voices of birds, uh, their melodic calls and cries, as well as cricket rhythms and um, even the sighing of the wind in the branches of trees, all of these voices that for once carried, that at one time carried so much meaning for us as humans are now being silenced or we no longer hear these voices because we are caught up in this closed loop with our own signs with our own inventions, uh, a loop that it seems to me short circuits that much older co-evolved reciprocity between the human body and the living, breathing body of the land itself. Hmm. Uh, you said in the beginning of the conversation how you um, philosophize under the influence of Earth. And you made... Uh, um, the distinction how uh, there's this sensual uh, reality that we're responding to and, and, and there's language. And what, what struck me is that uh, although we are uh, right now thousands of miles apart and basically we are just connected via the internet and uh, via technology, uh, the way you're using language seems to enliven Uh, the very um, sensual experience that you're talking about. So there seems to be something about our, new, our human capacity to language that evokes uh, all this world that's, that's more than the human world. Uh, how, how is that? So what's, what's the magic of language that is capable of doing this? Well, it seems to me that... Um that there are, as I was saying at the beginning, ways of speaking that can draw us closer to our senses and our sensory experience of the earthly sensuous. But there are other ways of speaking that can really close our senses and, um, and render us oblivious, blind and deaf to the the more than human terrain around us so i'm trying to not just explore but to practice uh 
this kind of word magic, because language always has a, a kind of magical power over us. By magic, I simply mean it is more than purely rational effect upon upon us. Um, and every indigenous culture, every deeply oral or non-writing culture uh, knows and uh, engages to some extent or other in word magic um, that is using their language, using our ways of speaking to, uh, to enchant the world or to bring us into a more rich, enchanted relation to the world. But they're just as aware that one can also use language to deaden things, to uh, steal the life, or apparently deaden our experience of, of the living world around us. So language has this double-edged quality to it. And, um, of course, I am trying to speak in the ways that... Uh, that hold me close to my animal senses. That is, is it possible? Here's the question. Is it possible to speak not as a disembodied mind mm. that just sits somewhere inside my head, talking to another disembodied mind that sits inside your head? Is mm. it possible to speak as a full-bodied animal so that my ways of wielding my words of putting phrases together, actually draw you or draw any listener out of her or his abstractions down into her senses so that she starts feeling the world with her animal uh, body once again in order to understand what I'm saying. I think we could all greatly benefit from such a practice which would be different for every one of us because, uh, because our senses are different, our, uh, the things that we find uh, alluring or evocative are, are unique to each of us. And yet there is a great deal of overlap. And of course, poetry and poets have, for our culture, for a very long time, been the practitioners of this kind of word magic. Mm -hmm. exploring uh, fresh and unique ways of speaking that uh, that alter our felt experience in one way or another. It seems uh, in the way you are describing your uh, relationship to language that uh, we have something in our hands are uh, as a cultural species, in fact, that allows us to really dive into our embodiment, or as you call it, our animal reality, and be able to evoke in our uh, poetic use of language are an, a cultural uh, capacity to relate to uh, the whole world around us, and the part of what maybe is also the response uh, uh, that we need in our time, and 
that's how I hear you. And I'm, I'm curious if, if, if I hear correctly to really pay attention to our use of language because it's our language that opens up our world and in the cultivation, cultivation of let's call it a sensuous language. That is basically as you started to name the air, the name the ground under your feet, or something becomes alive in this, in the dialogical space between us. Yes. Doing this allows us to break through the bubble that we also created through language. That this is basically part of the cultural practice that you advise us to engage in. Yes, very much so. And are we recording? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, that is just how, how I see this and how I understand it. Um, that it's not because language is everything as some uh, postmodern philosophers would, uh, would claim. No, for me, language is not everything. Um, it is uh, rooted uh, in the world of our direct sensorial experience. The sensuous uh, is much vaster than what we are able to put into uh, into words. But our ways of wielding our words, our ways of speaking, um, can close us off from much of the sensuous or sensual richness of our earthly habitat. Um, or our ways of speaking can open us ever more uh, intensely to the nuances and uh, wonder and utter weirdness of the world that we inhabit with our sensate human bodies. And so, um, like I say, I am just interested in, in the practice, uh, both as a writer, but more importantly, as a speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, when I write books, I don't write books to get people reading more books. I write in service to the language, I write to alter by whatever increments or tiny uh, moves to shift the way that we speak, in, even in our everyday conversations with one another. Because I'm convinced that, um, that there are uh, patterns in our daily ways of speaking that keep blinding our eyes and closing our ears to anything that does not speak in words. So um, this is my practice. And of course, this, um, uh, forgive me, there's a phone ringing in the background, sure. um, but I, let's just let it go. Um, to, to be trying to draw myself and others uh, ever more deeply into their bodies, into their felt creaturely embodiment. Uh, this work runs counter to um, a, a very long, very age-old tradition of, uh, of 
many thousands of years, really, of disparagement in the West, in our civilization, a disparagement of the body and of matter and materiality as fallen and sinful and demonic and uh, uh, a deep sense in our spiritual traditions that um, the sacred, the good, in fact, the deep source of life lives far overhead beyond the clouds, beyond even the sphere of fixed stars, mm -hmm. that the spirit has a source radically outside the body's world, um, outside of the sensuous. Um, and yet it seems to me that the ecological crisis uh, is, is in many ways fed by and caused by this very insulting relation to matter and materiality and embodiment, where we think that the spirit only comes from somewhere else and descends into this world from, from, from beyond the stars. If we wish to really uh, counter the ecological destruction, the losses of species, the, uh, the uh, pollution of the waters and the winds, we will have to radically transform this way of thinking and begin to recognize that matter is already spiritual, that matter is as as the word should make evident to our animal ears, matter is mater. It is the same word as as mother, both from matrix, this Greek word that means the womb. Uh, there is a sense in which matter is the womb of all things. And so it does not need this bright fire of spirit to descend from elsewhere to animate it because matter is animate from the get-go, that matter, the material world, is alive through and through. And of course, this is a common insight of so many indigenous oral cultures, as different from one another as these cultures are, there is this common awareness that everything is alive, and even that everything speaks. And so, in some way, we are uh, needing to remember um, and resuscitate a style of experience that was left behind thousands of years ago mm -hmm. when we stepped into uh, formalized agriculture, when we stepped into the regime of writing and reading language written down on flat pages rather than uh, living in a world of stories that themselves were held in the land itself because the world was filled with stories sprouting from every creek bed and cluster of rocks. Um, in some way, we are needing to resuscitate or replenish that oral, uh, directly felt relation to the land around us.
And I'll say one last thing in this regard. Um, we often speak of uh, modernity and modern science as having um, banished these old uh, spiritual superstitions from our experience, including um, even the religious uh, sense of spirit residing in the sky. Um, but it seems to me that, that the scientific revolution in many ways did not, um, did not erase or even push to the margins our felt sense that the material world is, uh, is drab and sinful or perhaps demonic. It just translated this into a new guise. So now we no longer speak of physical reality as, uh, as demonic and sinful and fallen, but we now speak of it as inanimate, determinate, mechanical. It's just translating these old, um, theological and monotheistic prejudices into a new, more modern guise. Mm. And when we speak of nature as just a set of objects, we are doing much the same thing as our many, many generations ago ancestors were doing when they spoke of nature as a fallen world, a world that uh, needs to be um, uh, mastered and controlled and that we must not identify with that natural world because um, it is riddled with uh, uh, sinful influences mm-hmm. and we should uh, aspire to ascend out of this world. As I, as I hear you, uh, you are, you seem to call to something that is going very deep against the grain of our culture. And we're not talking just about the last 200 years or something like that. We, we are talking, uh, several thousand years. Yeah. Because the way uh, you're describing our use of, uh, something very fundamental in our language, our relationship to the, uh, to matter, and our relationship to spirit, yes. you are directly calling for the opposite that uh, usually spiritual people are calling for. Yes. Uh, even the word materialist uh, is uh, a word that is just uh, has a bad connotation. And I heard you in a, in a different conversation that, uh, that you really make a point, I am a materialist. Yes. And, the way I hear you is to really see how both, uh, and you were referring to both, you were referring to the monotheistic Christian religion where basically spirit is beyond the sky, beyond the heavens, and uh, uh, our material world is sinful, and our modernist scientific incarnation of that where matter is maybe not sinful anymore, but it's just that matter, where you say, no, look in the opposite direction, matter in itself is matter is the womb is the is 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 the origin of life so is alive through and through from the get go yes 
Yes. It, it's fascinating to see how you have to go literally against the whole deep ingrained use of language uh, to even allow uh, uh, the thought that you try to bring us uh, to, to, to go with it because uh, uh, it's so natural that materialist means something that's not, uh, everyone knows what materialist usually means and it's not a nice thing, but you, you're saying in, in this understanding of language, you're already uh, basically uh, isolating us from the very womb that we come from. Yes. Um, I mean, it's so funny that my, you know, various colleagues and friends will say that the problem of our time is that we are so materialist because I, I mean, we are not, we, we pay hardly any attention to the materials uh, from which our, uh, our computers are fashioned, from which our chairs and our houses are fashioned. We take matter so much for granted. Um, I don't think we are materialist at all. Um, but, of course, I am not saying we should just... Uh, uh, situate ourselves or or be materialist. I am, I am, I am suggesting that we give, we begin to notice a new resonance in the very word matter, a new resonance to what it is to be a matter realist. That is, that um, that. Materialism has had a bad association because we assume that matter is inanimate, is mm -hmm. inert, is just dead objective stuff. And an, uh, the new possibility that I think is being born all around us and through the work of many uh, philosophers and writers and poets is a new kind of materialism or matter realism that recognizes that matter is alive through and through, that it is the very body of spirit. And that spirit itself, you said I have to go against the whole of the language to, to, to make this move, but no, really it's about just looking in the depths mm -hmm. of our words themselves, in the depths of language of the very terms we use. Of course, in English, the word spirit comes from the same origin as the word respiration or breathing. They both from the Latin word spiritus, which means a breath or a gust of wind. But our word psyche, from which we get psychology and psychiatry and eco-psychology, psych psyche comes from where? A much older Greek word, psyche, which originally meant a breath or a gust of wind. Or the Latin word for the soul, anima, from which we get animal and ensouled being, or unanimous, being of one soul or one mind. Where does anima come from? An older Greek term, animos, which means wind. Even such a scientifically respectable word as atmosphere, where does that come from? Well, the same origin as the Sanskrit word atman for soul, but the, the, the origin, atmos, originally meant the soul which is the air, 
the air which is the soul. So that spirit or soul was originally not something uh, that lives out above the stars. Spirit was just the invisible mystery of the air itself, of the breath, of this invisible elixir that we continually drink. And now, in our own lifetimes, it's becoming so evident that this, this spirit, this, this invisible rushing spirit, in Hebrew we call it ruach, or rushing spirit, and it's felt to be the, the very presence of the holy or of the divine within the body's world, is the wind. And as we were saying in the very beginning of our conversation, Thomas, we now know that the air that we breathe is dependent upon the life of all the plants around us, the the trees and the herbs, uh, that what they breathe out, all of us animals breathe in. What we animals breathe out, all the plants breathe in. So that the spirit itself is something born of this earth, and it does not belong to us humans. It is rather a property of the biosphere itself. We live in a breathing world, in a breathing cosmos, and every being, every animal, every plant participates in this spirit from its own angle, through its own senses, with its own body. And so there is this uh, rich, new kind of spirituality or a new sense of the sacred, it seems to me, that is being born in our time through your work, through my work, through the work of many others, where the, the sacred is beginning to bleed back into the world that our bodies are directly embedded within. That is, the sacred is beginning to become fully imminent. We are speaking of a fully imminent relation to the, mm. to the whole, where the divine is not anywhere else, but it's right here and has been here all along. And perhaps we had to take this long journey out of it and splitting off spirit from matter in order to come back into the earth, back into our bodies, back into the material world in a fresh way with new eyes to see how outrageously magic, outrageously mysterious and beautiful it is and begin to care for it again. David, as we are already a little over our time, uh, allow me to uh, take this also as uh, our the, the, the final thought, and I think to really uh, see this perspective, to bring the sacred back into the incarnation uh, is, I think, something that uh, really connects a lot of beautiful work around the, the globe. So there's something also alive where this need that you're talking about, uh, people sense it, and I think this is also where the hope is, that uh, something comes alive that is sacred, it's not living somewhere outside uh, our living sphere, but it's really there where life is in our uh, matter, material world. So thank you so much for this 
uh, time together. I appreciate it very much. Uh, you're very welcome, Thomas. Thank you, and thank all of you who've been listening. Thank you for everyone listening, and have a good evening here from Frankfurt, Germany.